following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. It's good to be together worshiping the Lord, worshiping our Savior. I hope that you're encouraged this morning after hearing wonderful testimonies and amazing singing of praises. Uh, we were up there in the baptismal area, and uh, you guys sounded amazing uh, in terms of your singing to, to the Lord. It's good to praise Him. Amen? Amen? Amen. Well, let me pray for us as we begin our time in God's Word, okay? Father, we are amazed by Your grace. We are people who are the recipients of Your mercy and Your compassion Not because we deserve it, Lord, but because you are a merciful, gracious God. And I pray that this morning we might be in awe of your amazing grace. So that we might walk away being changed people. Being people who are doers of the word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. Help us, Lord, that we might be attentive. Give us teachable hearts, soft and tender hearts to your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The title of this morning's message is Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, and I would invite you to turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, and if you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of the Word of God, Titus chapter 2, and I will be reading verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Amen to the reading of the Word of God. Please have a seat. Well, many of you are familiar with the hymn, Amazing Grace. Uh, One of the most famous hymns of all time. The hymn is uh, so famous that it has been sung after monumental speeches such as Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. It was sung after the fall of the Berlin Wall many years ago. It was sung by mourners following the attacks of 9-11 just a few years ago. Not to mention the countless churches all over the globe who sing that song. In fact, three out of the last four funerals that I've conducted, Amazing Grace has been sung in that particular funeral. But you know, the words of the hymn can be better appreciated when we consider the author, John Newton. Uh, Newton was born on July 24th, 1725 in London, England. He was raised by a Christian mother from an early age, uh, was taught the scriptures, and his mother taught him uh, many of the lyrics uh, by Isaac Watts. And then she passed away when John Newton was seven years old. And John Newton certainly did not follow in his mother's footsteps. Uh, Newton, in his early years, grew up plunging deeper and deeper into gruesome sin. Uh, For many years, Newton worked as a slave crew ship member, and then a captain, 
And he lived such a wretched life that even his own crew members did not want to be around him because he had plunged such, so deep into wicked lifestyle and sinfulness. He even contemplated suicide a couple of times. It was at the age of 22 that Newton's life turned around. While on a ship, Newton was awakened by a violent storm, and as he's making his way up uh, the ladder to the deck to try to uh, get control of the ship and steer the wheel, he saw one of his own crew members being swept away by the waters, never to be seen again. And in desperation, Newton prayed to God and said, Lord, have mercy on us. For hours, the Lord protected Newton and many of the other members. And God answered Newton's prayer and spared his life and the lives of many others on that ship. Most people say that that event was the turning point in John Newton's life. The great blasphemer, as Newton referred to himself, eventually quit the slave trading business And his life continued to change. He was impacted by men like George Whitfield and John Wesley. And his life continued to change in such a dramatic way that even people began to take note of him and even his amazing testimony and encourage him to pursue the pastorate, which he eventually did. Later in his life, Newton would have a huge impact on another famous figure by the name of William Wilberforce a politician in England who fought for the eventual passing of the act for the abolition of the slave trade in England. And you know, when you think about Newton's life, you quickly realize that he had a very, very uh, difficult life, plunging deep into sin. And it's without a doubt that his life's testimony is really the background for his lyrics of Amazing Grace when you think about it more and more. It is believed that Newton wrote this song, Amazing Grace, in 1772 in preparation for a New Year's Day service at the church where he was pastoring. And he wanted to inspire the hardworking class to continue hard in their labors. One scholar said that Newton, on on, on Friday, January 1st, 1773, said to his congregation, The Lord gives us many blessings, but unless we are grateful for these, we lose much of the comfort for them. What about you and I? Where were you when the Lord found you? I was a wretch. You see, it was Newton's transformation by God's grace that really was the driving force behind the song Amazing Grace. And years after writing the song on his deathbed, Newton told one of his friends, quote, My memory is now nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior, end quote. What an amazing, amazing testimony of God's amazing grace. Amen? And isn't isn't it amazing, beloved, that the same transformation of lives are continuing to take place in today's world? In all of our lives, our lives continue to be impacted. For John Newton and countless other Christians, the grace of God forever changed them. Forever. They were forever different. God's grace propelled them to holy living and a life devoted to good works for the glory of God. And beloved, today I want us to stop and reflect upon the amazing grace of God and the impact that the grace of God has upon us and in in the way that we live our lives here on earth. I want to ask you this morning, how often do you really stop to ponder the amazing grace of God in your life? How often do you do that? 
Because you see, it's only as we reflect upon God's amazing grace and what He has done, we will be then driven to holy living and good works for the glory of God here on earth in anticipation of our King's return. Amen? We need to be reflecting upon God's amazing grace. And to help us today, I want to examine this passage in Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, because it's here that the Apostle Paul really unpacks for us the amazing grace of God. Now, Paul wrote this little letter to Titus, his child in the faith, who was a young pastor ministering on the island of Crete. And ministering on the island of Crete was no cakewalk for anybody, including Titus. It was a difficult environment. The island of Crete was a a place full of wickedness and deception and lying. There were famous sayings in those days that highlighted the wickedness of the island of Crete. For example, someone could tell you, why don't you go ahead and play the Cretan with a Cretan? And what they meant was, why don't you try to out-trick a trickster? That represented the Cretan society. They were full of, of deception and they were tricky people, swindlers. Liars, lacking integrity. In fact, in chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul quotes one of their own prophets. Verse 12 of chapter 1 says, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, says Paul. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. So even from their own camp, Their wickedness was highly recognized. And so in a society known for wickedness like this, it's no surprise that the church was beginning to be influenced by the sins that characterized that Cretan society. And not only that, but false teachers, according to chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, false teachers were creeping into the churches. So what does Paul do? Paul writes that the churches, Titus, need strong leadership. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, he says. And not only that, but they need to be taught how to live amidst a wicked society. They need sound doctrine, healthy teaching that will lead to godly living. And that's what he does in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. It's there that Paul instructs Titus on the godly lifestyle that is to be consistent with sound, healthy teaching. He instructs older men, older women, younger women, younger men, including Titus and bond slaves on the godly lifestyle that adorns the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Godly conduct that brings glory to our saving God. However, in our passage, Paul makes it very clear that the godly lifestyle given in verses 2 through 10 is only made possible by God's grace. In Titus 2, 11 through 14, Paul gives the foundation for godly conduct. It's the heart of the letter. And from this passage, beloved, I want to encourage us this morning. I want us to see three characteristics of God's amazing grace. Three characteristics of God's amazing grace which propel us to holy conduct for the glory of God. Three characteristics of God's amazing grace. And the first one is this. God's amazing grace is a saving grace. God's amazing grace is a saving grace. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That little word for at the beginning of verse 11 is looking back to the instructions that Paul has just given Titus in verses 2 through 10 regarding godly conduct. 
And so verses 11 through 14 are the heart of the letter. Here is the doctrinal basis for the conduct called for in verses 2 through 10. In other words, the reason and the foundation for holy living in a wicked society is that the grace of God has appeared. And what is the grace of God? Grace is an attribute of God that refers to God's kindness and blessing shown toward sinners who do not deserve His kindness, but only deserve His punishment. Grace is God's unmerited favor toward a sinner. One commentator has written this, quote, Grace is God's gracious intention toward mankind, whereby He saves, instructs, and enables His people. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve, namely His special favor and blessing. While mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve, namely His wrath and condemnation, end quote. But Paul here highlights not just the attribute of God's grace, but the manifestation or expression of God's grace. Paul says here that the grace of God found very visible physical expression at a very specific time in history. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared. God is the source of this grace, which has been manifested, says Paul, or it has been shown. See, God's grace is not just a a gut feeling that God had. In fact, we know that in a very tangible, visible way, this passage is telling us that the grace of God has found expression in one monumental, epic historical event, and that was the appearance of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the ultimate, visible manifestation of God's grace, beloved. In fact, we know that it is Christ whom Paul is referring to here. The end of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14 says, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Then, down in chapter 3, verse 4, we have further proof that what Paul is talking about with this personified grace being Christ Jesus... Paul uses the same word in chapter 3, verse 4, when he says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, or it was shown, or it was manifested. Same word used in chapter 2 and verse 11. So grace is personified here, referring to the historical epic appearance of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say amen to that. That God's grace appeared in Jesus And Jesus didn't appear on the scene purposeless. This grace, personified in Christ, also came with saving power. He came with saving power. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The sense here is that God's grace has appeared with saving power. Christ had a particular purpose for coming, and that was to fulfill His Father's will to give His life for sinners. In fact, he says in Matthew 18, 11 about his own ministry, the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Matthew twenty twenty eight, Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the personified grace of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, appeared in order to provide a way of salvation for sinners, beloved. And that is a huge emphasis throughout the book of Titus. Paul presenting God as a God who is a saving God. Who has brought salvation eight different times. 
God is presented as a saving God. And so this salvation becomes the, the foundation, the basis for our godly conduct here on earth. But the question is, you may be sitting in here this morning thinking, salvation from what? You may be sitting here wondering, what is so bad about my life that I need to be saved from? It's very possible that there are some of you sitting in here thinking that. And the Bible says that you, my friend, have a major problem. Each of us who have been born into this world are in a terrible and hopeless predicament. We are born broken and in a broken relationship with God, our Creator. The Bible says that God created each and every one of us for the purpose of living for Him and giving Him glory. Of keeping His creation. Yet each of us from the womb have terribly turned aside from the purpose to, in order for, from glorifying God to live for self. And to worship self. We are born sinners by nature. And we actively and willfully live out our sinful nature by following a course of sin and wickedness throughout our whole lives. Every single one of us are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, Titus 3 verse 3 describes each of us as those who were foolish, disobedient, deceived, slaves to evil desires and selfish pleasures, devoted to a life of sin and selfishness and hatred. In short, listen, we, each of us, live for self-worship and not for the glory of God. And far from God not caring about our sin or sweeping our sin under the rug, listen to me, my friend, our sin is an offense to a holy God. Our sin separates us from God. Our sin alienates us from God. If you are not a Christian this morning, you have not given your life to Christ, you are an enemy of God. You stand condemned before your holy Creator. Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We stand condemned apart from Christ. And one day, God will punish each of us for our wickedness. My friend, your sinful lifestyle may promise you temporary happiness and bliss in the present time. But one day God will render punishment and judgment for your sin. There will be no hope for the wicked person who has lived a life of wanton pleasure apart from God. There is no hope for those who do not have a right relationship with God, their Creator. There will be eternal punishment in hell. A place of eternal torment where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Apart from God forever and ever and ever. For those who have rejected the Lord. This is a terrible problem. A terrible predicament to be in. But I want to tell you today, this morning, about God's amazing saving grace. I want to tell you about what God has initiated. That God, your creator, has initiated a solution to your predicament. And apart from what He has initiated, you have no hope whatsoever for salvation. God's grace has appeared in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
God sent His only Son into the world to live the perfect life that you could never live. To suffer in your place. To die in your place. To rise from the dead. Taking upon Himself the judgment and the punishment from God that we deserved. And fully satisfied His Father's wrath on our behalf. Amen? That is an amazing saving grace. On the cross, the Father poured the fullness of His just wrath upon His own Son and crushed Him for you and I so that we might have life and have it abundantly. This is the Gospel. This is the good news. The hope of Christ. That if you are living apart from Christ, beloved, this morning, you don't have to be. God is now declaring to you, repent and believe in My Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. We sing amazing grace because God, being the offended person, initiated reconciliation with us through the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. See? Amazing, saving grace. It is. Not because we're worthy, but because He's a gracious God. And you ask Kempis, who qualifies for this grace? Who qualifies for it? Well, the call to repent and believe is given to all. And I want you to see this in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Don't for a minute think that Paul here is promoting universalism. That every person will be saved. No. What he means is that this grace is intended for all kinds of people. The offer of salvation is for all people without partiality, regardless of class, race, gender, social status, etc. It's intended for everyone. But listen to me. This grace is only received and applied to those who what? Who believe. To those who believe. It is only the person who truly believes in God's grace who can be saved. How do you receive God's grace? You must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must turn from your sin, from living for self, and turn to Christ by faith, believing that only the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is able to pay for your sins. Only in Christ can you be forgiven of your sins. Only Christ satisfied the fullness of God's wrath. Repent and believe in Him. There's nothing you can do in and of yourself to save yourself. There's nothing you and I can do to earn God's favor. We cannot work our way to heaven. It is impossible to measure up to God's perfect standard. It would be like me telling you to go to Santa Monica Beach, and as you stand on Santa Monica Beach there, leap as far as you can and try to land on Catalina Island. How possible is that? Impossible. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is impossible to measure up to God's perfect standard. You can't do it. You need God's grace in Christ Jesus. Amen? Impossible to save yourself. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. And here in chapter 3 of Titus, verse 4, Paul says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, 
whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Salvation, beloved, is by grace through faith in the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I can do nothing to earn God's acceptance. Nothing. So the call of the gospel is to repent and believe in God's provision for your problem, for your terrible predicament. This is how God's grace is applied to you. And there are many saved sinners in here, many Christians who are merely people who have been reconciled, who are at peace with God. We are no longer enemies of God. We are friends of God and we are children of God. Amen? Saved by God Almighty. And we have this hope of eternal life where we will spend the rest of our lives in eternal bliss in the presence of our Almighty Heavenly Father. Amazing, saving grace. The grace of God has appeared in Christ to provide salvation from the terrible punishment that our sin brings. God's grace is amazing because it is a saving grace. But I want you also, secondly, to see that God's grace... Does not just limit the work, it's not limited in its work to salvation from the penalty and the punishment of our sin. God's grace is dynamic and continues to work in us so that we might be conformed into the image of Jesus. So not only is God's grace a saving grace, but God's grace, secondly, is a sanctifying grace. God's amazing grace is a sanctifying grace. Verse 11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Interesting word here in the beginning of verse 12, instructing. It means to teach, to discipline, or to train. The word instructing here is further expanding upon the grace of God here in verse 12. And the idea here is that grace not only saves, but is continually training us. Continually training us. Once again, grace is personified here. Grace is like a schoolmaster teaching us how to live. Like a parent training and teaching his or her children. In the same way, grace teaches us how to think, how to live, how to make godly decisions. Grace teaches us to develop new patterns of behavior in our lives. The point is that grace has an educative purpose in your life if you are a genuine believer, educating you how to live in a godly manner. And I want you to see this. Paul, Paul expands upon grace's training here. What is the content of grace's training for us? First of all, negatively, he says that grace it continually instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Negatively, grace is training us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to say no to, to abandon, to disown, to renounce or give up sinfulness in our life. You see, there was a definitive moment in your life, if you are a believer, at conversion, when you made a commitment to turn from your sinful lifestyle. When you abandoned your sins. When you wanted nothing to do with the hideous person that you used to be. You became a new person. You were born again. But far from just a one-time event that has no lasting effects and implications for the way that we live, this commitment that changed your life has lasting effects into the future. One commentator has written this 
Quote, grace does not offer a once-for-all deliverance from evil ways, but trains people to renounce them. End quote. So your conversion and my conversion, if you are a believer, sets you on a course to continue a life of dying to yourself and living for the purposes of God. Now, what does grace train us to deny or to renounce? First of all, he says ungodliness, which is anything anti-God, anything that, has, that is an affront to God's holy character. Ungodliness is living in contradiction to the character of God and the conduct that He requires. And second, he says, worldly lusts, which include the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life of 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. We are not to adopt the world's thinking, the world's desires, or fulfill the evil desires or conduct characteristic of the world around us, beloved, if you are a professing believer. You are denying, saying no to ungodliness and saying no to worldly lusts. The values of the world and the orientation of the world are not yours to pursue any longer. You have given that life up. You have renounced that lifestyle, beginning with your conversion. So negatively, grace trains us to renounce anything anti-God and worldly desires. Now on the positive side, grace also trains us how to live. And notice what he says in verse 12. To live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present world. More than just renunciation, grace wants to train believers to live victoriously in this present world. Grace trains us to live sensibly. Which has to do with the way that we conduct ourselves in our own personal life. Being sensible is a huge theme four different times in this book. That particular uh, 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 character quality is mentioned. The word is made up of two words, to save and mind. Literally, a saved mind. It refers to clear-headedness, proper, healthy thinking that leads to right conduct. See, grace trains us to cultivate proper, clear-headed thinking, which leads to a godly lifestyle, which is in accordance with the godliness that God requires. Secondly, grace trains us to live righteously, which has to do with the way that we behave and relate to other people. It means the upright behavior toward others. It has to do with treating others with fairness and justice. It means to do right with respect to your fellow man, motivated by genuine, authentic love for them, to do right to them, to be just. Grace also trains us to live godly, which is the way one lives in relation to God. First and foremost, it means living in a godly, genuine manner in accordance with the principles of God's word. To live a godly life means a life authentically devoted to God and wholeheartedly committed to walking in loving obedience to the Lord. Even amidst our own personal struggles, we are devoted to walking in loving obedience to our Heavenly Father in thought and in action. This is the positive training of grace with relation to self, to others, and to God. And notice what he says. We are trained to live this way while in this present world. God wants us to live this way now, beloved. See, grace does not just save us from coming judgment, but grace trains us to live victoriously in this present world for the glory of God. In a world hostile to Christianity. 
In a world like Southern California, as for them, it was the island of Crete. This is a point that Paul keeps making throughout the letter. Christians must live godly lives so that we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. We make the power of the gospel visible, beloved, to a lost world because as the world sees changed lives, they take note of a mighty God, mighty to save, and mighty to make you holy. So God's grace saves and God's grace sanctifies. And if you have met Christ, you have a new orientation in life, new values. You are forever changed and continuing to change. That was really what Paul was expressing in Philippians chapter 3. We're there in Philippians chapter 3 looking back at his lofty human achievements and accomplishments and moralism. Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as what? Loss for the sake of Christ. That was how he evaluated his past accomplishments, his moralism, his human achievements. But then he talks about the present. He says, more than that, I count. And the idea is in the present time, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So in the past, in the present, and into the future, I'm going to continue to pursue Christ. It's all about Christ. The past matters nothing. It doesn't matter what I accomplished. My moralism matters nothing before Almighty God. New orientation. New values had the Apostle Paul. A new outlook on what truly matters in life. No longer adopting worldly thinking and worldly desires. And those pursuits of the world. If you are a believer this morning, you have abandoned the person that you were and you are called to live in the power of the Spirit of God in accordance with the godliness that He requires of you. I knew a woman who was living with a man for a period of of time, really cared about the man, was an unbeliever, and one day the Lord saves her. And you know what she did? She broke off the relationship with that man. She broke it off. Because she was committing fornication, sex outside of marriage with that man. And she knew it. And she couldn't take it anymore. She wanted to honor her Lord Jesus, her precious Savior. And she was willing to drop that relationship and turn from it to honor the Lord. I knew of a young man who was a womanizer. Into bodybuilding, into himself, living for himself. And one day he meets Christ and he abandoned his life as a bodybuilder, broke off all those relationships and started to walk with the Lord. The saving grace of God, beloved, sanctifies, right? It allows you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in this present age. The saving grace of God sanctifies. I know a brother who was committing adultery as an unbeliever. And then he met Christ and he broke off the adulterous relationship. He broke it off. He repented of his sins, gave his life to Christ. And listen to this. His wife forgave him. And now they have a great marriage in Christ Jesus. That is a transforming power of God working in and through his mighty spirit by means of his word to sanctify people and to conform them into his image. You talk about values Valuing the things of the world. I know. I knew a brother in seminary who went to, he studied for 10 to 12 years to become a doctor. 
And at some point in time in his Christianity, he just realized, you know what? For me, I just cannot continue to earn triple digits, triple figures. I need to give my life wholeheartedly to the pastorate. He drops his profession in the medical field and he goes to seminary to be a pastor of all people. And he's not earning triple figures anymore. I can assure you of that. That's the grace of God working in and through people. Amen? That's God's grace working in and through people. I know a brother in this church who perhaps could have pursued a career in golfing, in professional golfing. And at some point in his life, he realized that that field was full of vain glory. And in the end, he wanted to invest himself into the kingdom and he left golfing. Amazing. Change of values. New orientation in life. Grace trains us to say no to selfish living, beloved, and to say yes to glorifying God with our lives, even if it costs us everything. Amen? Even if it costs us everything. So what are we saying? That this amazing grace is, that is a saving grace is also a sanctifying grace. That when God saves you by His grace, you are forever changed and forever you are changing. God's amazing grace is a powerful, sanctifying grace. And can I remind us this morning, there is no salvation without transformation. There is no salvation without transformation. There is no deliverance from the penalty of sin while the power of sin still remains and you never become more like Jesus. God does not offer us a get out of jail free card. He doesn't do that. The same power of God that raises a spiritually dead sinner is the same power that is more than able to make you like Jesus. More than able to do that. Consequently, listen to me, there is no such thing as a carnal Christian who is not growing, who is living in continual unrepentant sin. There is no such thing as a believer who has a pattern, that's the key word, as a pattern of life, lives for self and not for God. Someone whose consistent desire is to pursue sin, who lives in unrepentant sin, who exercises no self-restraint whatsoever over selfish pleasures. Listen. Someone who continually gives in comfortably to sin and is comfortable living in unrepentant sin and is not fighting for holiness is probably not a Christian. Can I be so bold as to say that? I knew a woman in her 30s living in unrepentant sin a few years ago who had five children from three different men. None of them she was married to. She was full of hatred, hating people. And when I shared the gospel with her, she told me, you have nothing to say to me about that. I gave my life to Jesus when I was five years old. And he loves me and he'll always love me forever. Really? You know what that is? That's a contradiction, isn't it? That is a contradiction. There's no such thing as a person whose life is unchanged for years, but claims to have met the Savior. That's a contradiction. You mean to tell me that the same power that saves you is not able to make you more and more like Jesus? Whether in little steps or big steps? What do you mean? That's an attack on the the power of God is what it is. What kind of God is that? A God who 
is not able to make you like a son? I don't want to trust in that kind of God. No, my friend. The same mighty God who saved you. The same mighty God who saved you is the same mighty God who is able to conform you into the image of His Son. Amen? That's the same mighty God. God's grace is a sanctifying grace, and it is a saving grace. And the issue, beloved, is not perfection, but it is progression, isn't it? It's progression. The point is not that you will never struggle with sin, that you will not be in a fight against sin. The question is, are you battling with sin? Are you fighting with sin? If you are in a fight against your sin on a daily basis, and you want to be holy, that's a great sign that the Spirit of God is working in and through you to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Amen? If you hate your sin and you long to be like Jesus, you are in a very good place. Christians are those who are characterized by a longing and a commitment to crucify self and to live for God. This is why Paul cries out at the end of Romans 7. He's reflecting on his waging of war against sin. And he cries out at the end of Romans 7. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. See? And then he goes plunges into chapter 8 of Romans. And the life lived in the power of the Spirit of God. Victorious, holy, godly living. See? That's the cry of a converted man who hates Sin and wants to be holy and wants to live in the power of the Spirit of God by the guidance of God's holy word. God's grace is amazing, beloved, because it's a sanctifying grace. It's a sanctifying grace. Finally, I want you to see that as we are in this fight, in sanctification, pursuit of holiness, how crucial it is for us to be fixing our eyes on what is to come. And we are able to do this only by God's sustaining grace. God's grace, thirdly, is amazing because it is a sustaining grace. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. How does grace train us to persevere in this war for holiness in this present life. I want you to notice that grace trains us to be looking or eagerly anticipating is the idea here, longing for the return of Christ. One commentator wrote this, the renouncing of worldliness is thus not asceticism for its own sake, but is an aspect of the path to a greater joy than the world can offer, end quote. In other words, we say no to sin and yes to godliness, and we do so fully anticipating and longing for Christ because seeing and being with Him, beloved, will be the greatest joy that we will ever experience on this earth. Amen? It will be the greatest joy. In verse 13, he says, our, he's our, our blessed hope. That is synonymous with the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus here. Part of this blessed hope is a steadfast, unwavering confidence that we have a future salvation in which we will be delivered completely from sin. Completely from sin. That is a blessed hope. Amen? It is a blessed hope because when Christ arrives in all of His glory, we will experience the fullness of joy in the presence of our wonderful Savior. Perfect fellowship. Perfect communion with Jesus. In sinless perfection. 
And notice we wait for the beautiful person, right? Whom Paul describes here as our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. For those of you in here who are Greek scholars, the whole title is governed by one definite article, making this an explicit reference to the deity of Christ. Literally, the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. See, beloved, it's this longing for Christ's return which sustains us and motivates us to pursue a godly lifestyle. When a believer truly lives in the light of the king's return, we will live the way that the king desires for us to live, right? Sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So grace trains us to live for God and to do so because we anticipate the king's return when we will be made perfect and enjoy perfect fellowship with him. That is a blessed hope, a blessed hope. In our church in the last few months, we've had a number of godly saints who have gone home to be with the Lord. One of them, our dear Kathy Salido, who many of you guys knew, right? Who passed away just a few months ago after battling with cancer off and on for a few years. The last time that I saw Kathy, Kathy her body was already deteriorating. Um, hardly any strength. She says to me, Pastor, I long to go home. I long to go home. I can't wait to see Jesus. There was this longing and this anticipation, this looking for the return of Christ. And yet, listen to this. When I asked Kathy, Kathy, how can I pray for you, sister? How can I pray for you? What's something in your heart right now that you want me to pray for you and to tell others to pray for you about? And Kathy says to me, Pastor, I want to make sure that even in the midst of me dying of cancer, I want to make sure that I am a godly testimony to those who are around me, that they see me suffer well in the midst of my difficulty. I want to be a good testimony. See, even though she longed to be with Christ, she realized that the purpose for which Christ had her here still was that she would live for him, that she would, by her life, have people point to him. And I want you to see that as grace trains us to long for the return of Christ and to long for this perfect fellowship and perfect holiness, this passage also teaches us that we have work to do here on earth as we await Jesus' return, right? In verse 14, Paul expands on the saving work of Jesus. And as he does that, he ties this longing anticipation to why Jesus came and the reason why he gave his life for us and the implications for the way that we live. In other words, it says if Paul is saying to us in verse 14, live in anticipation of the glory that is to come, but don't forget why Jesus gave himself as you live in the here and now. Don't forget. And he points to what Jesus did. Why did our great God and Savior Jesus Christ give his life? Look at verse 14. First it says, he gave himself for us, to or in order that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Christ gave his life to purchase us from slavery to sin. To redeem here means to pay a price or a ransom in order to obtain someone's release. How did Jesus purchase us from slavery to sin? He gave himself, right? He gave his own life. He gave his life for us. He himself, beloved, was the ransom price. And why? In order that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. 
Every sinful action antithetical to God's word. Lawlessness. We were purchased away from lawlessness so that we might walk in righteousness. See? But notice second, Christ gave his life so that we might belong to him and to serve him. So that we might belong to him and serve him. We don't belong to ourselves. Verse 14 says, And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. To purify here means to cleanse from sin and the defilement of sin. Mark it. Christ's death was for making you and I clean from our sin. And notice, because of that, we are his special possession. We are a people for his own possession. We belong to him. He paid the price of his own life. He gets the trophies who are his special people, right? He is the one who gets those. And as his prized possessions, his desire, beloved, is that we would be zealous for good deeds. There's a huge focus on the importance of good deeds in the Christian life in the book of Titus. In chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says to Titus, Show yourself an example of good deeds, Titus. Chapter 2, verse 14, he says that believers are to be zealous for good deeds. Chapter 3, verse 1, believers are to be ready for every good deed. Chapter 3, verse 8, those who have believed God should be careful to engage in good deeds. Chapter 3, verse 14, our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Mark it. Holiness and a life devoted to good works are the fruit of grace working in your life. So Titus teaches us that while good deeds are not the basis of salvation, listen, good deeds are the necessary fruit and commitment of a person who is saved. Amen? One of the distinguishing marks of a true believer, beloved, is an eagerness and enthusiasm to perform good deeds for the glory of God, to express kindness toward other people, to be about meeting pressing needs. It is the appropriate response to what God has done for you and for me in our own lives. We offer worship to God, we pursue holiness, and we want to devote our lives to doing good unto others because of what God has done for us, right? Which is infinitely greater than anything we could ever do for anybody here on this earth, see? Why did Jesus die? Was it just to deliver us from hell? Thank be to the Lord that He did deliver us from hell, amen? Ultimately. But not only that. As glorious as that reality is, it is much more than that. His purpose in dying for us, beloved, was so that we would be His special people that would no longer be slaves to sin, but serve Him as we anticipate His return. See? That is why He came. To purchase a people zealous for good deeds. Notice Jesus cleanses us. He takes dirty, filthy sinners. He washes us. He cleanses us. He purifies us. He calls us His own. But we were not cleansed, beloved, so that we would live for self. We were cleansed so that we might live for Him. We have not been bought so that we might now be our own person. There is no such thing for the Christian. You have been purchased. You belong to Christ. Amen? You belong to Him. This was the purpose of Christ dying for us in verse 14. To set us apart as a special people. I want to encourage you this morning in your battle against sin. If you long to be holy, 
If you long to be living a godly lifestyle because you want to give glory to God, there is amazing encouragement and hope as you and I fix our eyes on the sustaining grace of God that comes when we're reminded of the fact that he's coming back. Amen? Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. By the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. Listen, beloved, we will be made like our Savior. Amen? We will be made like him. No more tears, no more pain, no more struggle with sin. Perfect fellowship with him. Perfect bliss. Eternal life with the lover of our souls. And peace beyond our fondest imagination. Amen? What an encouraging thing that is. Let God's amazing grace, beloved, sustain you as you anticipate His return. See? Truly, as the song says, God's grace is amazing grace. And Titus 2, 11 through 14 tells us that God's grace is amazing because it's a saving grace. It's a sanctifying grace. And it's a sustaining grace. Well, if you are not a Christian this morning, I hope that if you are existing in a broken relationship with the Lord that you would not leave this morning without talking to somebody. Talk to me. Talk to another person in here, please. Please don't leave. I pray that you would experience God's saving grace today. Amen? I pray that you would do that. And for all, all the rest of us who are Christians, I would encourage us to be amazed by the grace of God anew today. Spend some time reflecting upon His grace because only as we learn to appreciate His grace, beloved, will we be motivated to a greater level of commitment for His glory here on earth be giving our lives, doing good works for the glory of our Almighty Heavenly Father, right? And I just want to remind us right now as well, part of what will motivate you to continue here on this earth, zealous for good deeds, is good fellowship, right? So right now, I would encourage each and every one of you not to leave, all right? In the great room, uh, if you make your way to my right up the stairs, you will be directed by Len Bentley, okay? to the food line via the ministry fair tables circuit. We're going to have a time of food and fellowship there. You can be exposed to all of Calvary's uh, ministries uh, at this time and just a great time of fellowship together, all right? Let me pray for us and our food as well. Father, your grace is truly amazing, Lord. You sent your son, Jesus, into the world as the ultimate manifestation of your grace. He lived the perfect life we could never live, suffered and died in our place, and rose from the dead. All of this, Lord, so that we might have hope if we trust in Him. Help us to be amazed by Your saving grace, Your sanctifying grace, Your sustaining grace, Lord, as we anticipate the King's return. And in light of Your salvation, Father, may we diligently strive to be holy in the here and now and be zealously pursuing good works for Your glory, Lord and for the exaltation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for our fellowship time together, Lord, and the food we're going to enjoy upstairs, that it would be for your honor and for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.